Please turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a privilege and a joy to be with you uh, this morning, uh, stepping in here for Austin. I'm grateful for the opportunity and grateful for him as pastoral leadership and just to have a chance to speak to you this morning. And we're going to do that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. The title of this sermon is Excel Still More. We begin in verse 9, which reads as follows. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, we are in the middle of it, March Madness, and I love every bit of it because I love basketball. And believe it or not, I was once a basketball player. I once resembled the ball a lot more than a player, but I did play some basketball. And I loved it. And, you know, anyone that loves basketball or anyone who's seen any of the highlights that come out of this season that we call March Madness, you know what we like. Dunks, windmills, 360s, half-court shots, buzzer beaters, the flashy stuff. And that's what they always put together when it comes down to how it is that you can condense the game. What were the highlights? What were the things that stood out? What were the things that everyone can say wow to? Now, if you know anything about basketball, all the things you see on the highlight reel are not what you should try to do on the basketball court. I know that's true for me, and that's true for most of you except Matt Ng. Matt can dunk. Believe it. Yeah, you can't. You needed him yesterday. Mm, sorry. There's something that's way more fundamental to basketball than highlight reels and flashy plays. And if you know anything about basketball, you understand that it's called this, the triple threat position. Triple threat position. That's the most important position in all of basketball. And I'll try to explain it a lot simpler than Stephen Curry did to me on YouTube. The triple threat position is simply this. You set yourself up to catch a pass, you face the rim, have the ball at your hip, and in this position, you are ready to do one of three things. It's not dunk, it's not heave a half-court shot, it's pass, dribble, and shoot. And this is the most fundamental thing to playing the sport of basketball. It's receiving a pass, it's getting the ball, and it's preparing yourself in that moment to be able to pass, dribble, or shoot. And our OG Steph Curry said it himself, that anyone who knows how to put themselves in triple threat position is the most dangerous person on the court. While we grow enamored with all the flashiness that comes with the sport, the most fundamental thing you can do is get the ball and be ready to pass, dribble, or shoot. I think that teaches us something in a very common way that reflects just how overcomplicated we tend to make life. And even how it is that we often gravitate towards the things in life that would seem flashy or admirable instead of focusing on the things that would be small and seemingly insignificant. But what we must do, and this goes for us as well in the Christian life, is focus on the fundamentals. If you want to be the best basketball player, what you need to do is find the right position and know how to make three simple moves. 
same is true for us in Christianity. I think we like to overcomplicate because it's so easy to do that in the church. And yet what Paul has for us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 9 to 12, it's kind of a how to be a Christian for dummies. It's kind of a a pull back from all the high theology and a pull back from all the things that you've been doing to expend energy and make yourself look like you're the greatest Christian in the world. And it draws you back to say, but do you even know how to do the basics? It isn't that those other things aren't good. We love those things. That's why we do ShepCon and we love hearing the sermons from there because we love seeing the best guys at work. But I hope that as we admire the best guys at work, we wouldn't be lacking in fruitfulness and faithfulness in our own lives because we don't give ourselves to the fundamentals of the Christian life. That's what Paul wants to draw us back to in this passage. This morning, what we would like to do is be instructed on the basic realities of our faith and how it is lived out. What is most fundamental to who we are? If we claim to be Christians, how then should we live? What does someone being saved and sanctified experience in Christ? And Paul wants to encourage us toward understanding this life in two ways. One, we want to see the encouragement to love. And two, we want to see an encouragement to live. It's that simple. It isn't rocket science. It doesn't require calculus. And thank God it doesn't require chemistry. The Christian life can be boiled down to two simple things. Do you love? And in Christ, do you live? What does that life look like? Well, I want us to see that this morning here in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And before we dive into that, I want to set this up for you with the right tone and the right heart that Paul is bringing in through this letter. As Paul navigates chapter four of this letter, he gets a little bit more practical and he gets a little bit more into exhortation. He is calling the Thessalonians to do something. But but I want you to note that before he does this, Paul spends three chapters praising the Thessalonians for their faith and praising God for the work that's occurring in them. Over 60% of this letter is simply Paul praising God and thanking him for the work in their lives. It's been noted by many that the letter to the Thessalonians is a letter of encouragement. And we see that throughout. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why? Because they remembered their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in chapter 2, Paul echoes these words again. We also thank God constantly for this. Verse 13. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And it doesn't stop there. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. This church was not only committed to receiving the gospel of Christ, but they were models in living it out. So much so that at the end of chapter 2, Paul has these words to say, verses 19 and 20. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it you? For you are our glory and joy. What a beautiful thing to say about another believer. 
And so what we notice here is that before Paul even begins to tell them what they need to do, Paul encourages them that they're doing things well already. And I hope that you have something like that in your life. I hope that Christianity and Christian fellowship and Christian maturity looks something like this. I hope that it isn't always being reprimanded or told you're wrong or told that you can do better. I hope that all those things are sown in the soil bed of encouragement. That's how Paul seeks to come to this church and help them grow all the more. They need encouragement. And they've been doing well, and Paul is so grateful, and yet Paul recognizes something that we all should recognize in ourselves as well as we often might be doing, we can still do better. This is a warning against any Christian who's ever felt that he's arrived in the Christian life. This side of heaven, you are still imperfect. Your life still says work in progress. And so as good as this church is doing, Paul says, let's do even better. Let's strive for more. Let me encourage you to to do even more excellently than you're doing even now. He wants to encourage them to do that by focusing back on the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of a life that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. And so Paul's encouragement to them is one of appreciating God's work in them and one calling them to live it out even more in its most fundamental way. He wishes for them not to shift in their stance and to stay the course. And how is it that they are to do it? Well, first, he encourages them to love. He encourages them to love We begin here in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, Paul's here. As Paul begins this exhortation, it's a beautiful thing that he says, you know, I really don't even have to say this. And the reason that he says this is not because they don't need to hear it, Or because he hasn't had to say it before. In fact, if we look back in chapter 4 here, we see 4 verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Paul is in the business of gracious reminders. Paul loves to remind these people of doing the very things that they're already doing. But what's in view here is that Paul has no need to write to them, not because he doesn't want to, but because Paul recognizes the work of God in the hearts of these people. Paul looks at them and says, there is evidence that what I'm going to ask you to do is already taking place. You don't need me to teach you because you have a great teacher You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How have we been taught by God to do that? We see it in the life of Christ, don't we? Not only in his great love for us, but also in his command to us. John chapter 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You, you are my friends if you do what I command. Not only has Jesus commissioned to live so, but he has also empowered us to do so by means of his Holy Spirit. Not sure if you noticed, but Jesus isn't around right now. And the disciples felt that very keenly when they spoke to Jesus and Jesus spoke to them of his imminent return to heaven. And he encourages them with these words in John 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, 
The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Romans 5.5 puts it clearer for us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because of that, we can live in this way. We can love in this way. The the reason we can love is because we have been taught by God and that lesson from God is a love that we have beheld in the person and work of Jesus and it's a love that Jesus empowers in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so then we understand that a loveless Christian is a spiritless Christian someone who doesn't know how to love and someone who refuses to love is someone who refuses the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The work of the Spirit is a work of love. And those who claim the name of Christ cannot only assume that that love extends vertically, but that love must initiate itself horizontally. That as you have experienced the love of God, and as you have claimed that now you love him as well, you must now love your brother. You must now love your sister. 1 John chapter 4 puts it ever so clearly for us. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To love one another. To to love one another is an expression of knowing God in faith. If you know him in spirit and in truth, then you better turn and love your brother and sister in Christ. 1 John 4, 8 goes on, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And what does that love then need to look like toward one another? I think we see it for ourselves here in verse 9 of 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. In us. How can you know that God loves you and that you love God? Because you love each other. And what does that look like? It looks like receiving that unconditional, unreserved, unfiltered love of God and then displaying that same love for each other. It is bearing one another's burdens. It is enduring to the very end with one another. It is born out in action. It isn't simply some kind of feeling because there's going to be times where you don't feel like it. And in that moment, what will you do? I pray that you would put on love. This is to be like our God. A God who is love expects his people to love. And we see that most keenly for ourselves in a passage that all of us love in Philippians chapter 2. Predicated on the love that Jesus has for us. A love in which God has humbled himself to the point of a servant, has given his life for his people. What does it do for us? Well, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, 
any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is others-oriented. Love is others-centered. Love is self-sacrificial. And love finds no reservation to extend itself to others. That is the love that we have received in Jesus. And some of you would say, well, I'm doing pretty good in that. I love serving other people. I love doing that. That's something that I appreciate doing. It's something I'm good at, and that's awesome. And here's what Paul would have to say. Do so more and more. Do so more and more. This church, Thessalonica, they were this way. They loved well. Paul has no need to write to them because the Holy Spirit is working in them to love and good works. Indeed, as he puts it here in verse 10, what they're doing, their love, it's extending to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Thessalonica is a capital city of this region called Macedonia, And so what we see is that their love has extended beyond the local parameters of their church. It branches forth and it reaches others. And so too should be our love. You are a member at Grace Church. Praise God. You should be a Christian toward all who are in the family of God. Your love is not bound here. This is just a family center which is great, we love it. But, but your love should extend well beyond the parameters of this building. Love one another, love your brothers and sisters. And it comes with no qualification. Isn't that interesting? It comes with no qualification on denomination, how they baptize babies. There's weird videos out there about how they baptize babies though. It comes with no qualification about how they think as to Calvinism or Arminianism. And it's not that those things don't matter. But if the church is to be built up, it will do so in love. I pray that you would live in the way that this church did and that you would love and that you would not be contented with loving the person to your right or left, but that you would go and love as many as you can. That's what Paul calls this church to. He he does so here by saying, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Pastor John Stott put it this way, our justification is indeed once and for all, but our justification, our, our sanctification is always more and more. Friends, God has brought you to this place and it isn't so that you would become complacent and think that you figured it out between you and God and others. He's brought you to this place so that you could see before him your very need of him every single waking hour and that in him there is more for you to do. The one who has saved you wishes to sanctify you and that, price, that process is lifelong and it is committed to finding ways in which to love others Always do so more and more. We turn from an encouragement to love now to an encouragement to live. And these two encouragements, our, they are connected through this means of Paul calling this church, urging this church to do this more and more. That phrase, it serves as a linchpin between these two encouragements. You should seek to more and more love others. You should also seek to more and more 
Live out your life in a way that honors God. This is Paul's aim here in these verses. It has been his aim from the beginning of this chapter. Again, they have received how they should walk and please God just as they're doing and they should do it more and more. That's First Thess 4 verses 1 and 2. This is the will of God for their lives. It's sanctification. And it's a sanctification that bears itself out in loving others. But it's also a sanctification that bears itself out in living life. What does a Christian life look like? I think the answers for us are not exactly what we would expect. Here's how you can live the Christian life. Be quiet, mind your business, and work hard. It's earth-shattering, isn't it? That's what Paul turns to here. This church that he wants to grow in Christ and that he has such an appreciation for and he wants to build up to be like its Savior, what does he tell them to do? How does he tell them to live? Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own business and work with your hands. Yeah, that should do it. Is that the answer you expected? Is that the answer you thought that Paul would have? It's not what I would think. Let's look at these three in their own right. It's interesting here, Paul first notes that this church should aspire to live quietly, which is ironic in and of itself if you know anything about how Paul entered the town of Thessalonica. Paul gets there amidst much persecution, and when Paul arrives, he falls in love with these people because they grow in God very quickly, and they become very committed to God, even as they understand what has happened to Paul and his friends for the sake of the gospel. And you can find this in Acts chapter 17. And no sooner have Paul and his friends arrived that the persecution arrives with them. And the clamor of the town is, these are the people that are turning the world upside down. I bet that gave the church in Thessalonica some kind of sense of, you know what, we got to be the same way. We got to flip everything around. We got to change this place. We got to do something to fix everything. You know what Paul says? Yep, that's a good idea. Here's a better one. Why don't you make it your ambition to have no ambition? Like, why don't you just sit down? You need to calm down. Not T. Swift, Paul. Nervous laughter. Live quietly. Aspire to do nothing. Aspire to be at peace where God has you. Aspire to keep to yourself. Aspire to not attract attention. Aspire to give yourself rest. Aspire to avoid the fray. Aspire to limit strife. Aspire to not be easily unnerved about the things going on around you. That's what Paul calls this church to do. That's how he calls them to live. We recognize this kind of life, and it's not this kind of sit down, twiddle your thumbs kind of life. What it is, is it describes for us something that's happening in your heart. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Paul commending wives how they ought to live Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And here's the mistake that so often is made. Many men read that and think, great, wonderful thing for wives, not necessarily for me. And I think you've missed the entire point. Paul gives that command to women not because it's only excluded for them, That is the life of someone in Christ, a gentle and a quiet spirit. 
We know this to be true. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy and he tells them how he should pray for the kings and rulers in government. And he says, pray also that you all would lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why is it that our lives should look that way? Because our lives are hidden in Christ. And our Jesus, the one that we worship now, is the same one who in John 16, said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christian, there is so much going on around you. There are still, I think, I'm not sure, pandemics out there. There are countries taking over other countries. There's your school losing in March Madness. There's your school not being able to participate in March Madness, TMU. There are things in the world that will cause much grief and tribulation and our desire so naturally is to lash out and say something about it. Send a tweet, send a DM, like that thing. I don't know, do something. And God says, live quietly, settle down, relax, it's okay. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Don't succumb to all those pressures. Instead of being like the world, be as I've called you to be. Instead of stirring the pot, stay the course. This is very applicable to us today. In a world where everyone has a voice and everyone has opportunities by which they can speak into all kinds of stuff, I promise you it is infinitely easier to be woke than to be quiet. Take a nap. It's good for you. Rest knowing that God is sovereign. God hasn't lost a grip on this world and in Christ Jesus, you are secure not only now but for all of eternity. And this stems itself from the love that we have for one another. A love not given to boiling over with pressures and trials and troubles but a love that stabilizes by remaining quiet. Secondly, secondly, here he tells us to live in this way. Not only are we to live quietly, but we are to aspire to mind our own affairs. And we're familiar with this one because we tell everyone else this all the time. Mind your own business. Worry about yourself. And there's something here to say about that, that if that's what you hear all the time, maybe you should. Yikes. I think Paul's message here is you need to focus and stop fixing. He's talking to someone here who is so given to everyone else's problems that they never see their own. They're great at collecting specs, but they need a log chipper. They're good at assessing what's wrong in everyone else's life while their own heart and their own life is bearing out symptoms that need addressing. Mind your own business. This is an issue that's going to be ongoing for the Thessalonian church. In 2 Thessalonians, this will come back up to haunt this church because they're a church that has grown well in Christ, but they've also grown to expect Christ. In fact, here in this letter, Paul is moving toward a discourse on the return of Jesus. And it would seem that as Christ is ready to return, this, this church seems to lose its balance. They feel the need to have to do a lot. They can't be quiet. They have to anxiously tell everyone everything about what God is doing all the time. They have to be all up in everybody else's business and they're not even given to working with their hands because Jesus is coming back right now. 
Paul's response to a church that is expecting Christ is to keep living. And this church didn't get it. They do so well, but even later, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You ever seen a busy body? I have. I got one in my house. He's one and a half. He's a busybody. His name is Nemo, Nehemiah, but we call him Nemo. Gimpy ear. Nemo, he's a busybody. Do you know what that means? It means he's got nothing to do all day. So what does he do? Well, he follows my wife to the bathroom. It's like, bro, get out of there. He follows Amariah to her room and she needs to change. Get out of there. He goes and messes up Nehemiah's train set. Nemo, get out of there. He follows me around the house. Get out of here. No, we love him and we love that he follows us around. But you know why he follows us around? He's got nothing to do. And that's cute when you're one and a half. It's not so cute when you're between 18 and 25. Nervous laughter. <laughs> right? It, when it's him, it makes all the sense. I mean, what's he expected to do? The guy just wants to follow us and see if he can find something for his life. He's looking for his calling. <laughs> I don't think you guys are anymore. If you've signed up for a biology, then be a biologist. And tell us what a woman is. <laughs> Whoops. That was a lot. Yep, that was a college joke. If you signed up to, to be an athlete, be an athlete to the glory of God. If you signed up to be a, uh, in chemistry, be a chemist. If you signed up to do kinesiology, help me fix this thing. I've got a kink in my neck. Do whatever it is that you need to be doing and take your gaze off everyone else. Focus. Concentrate. That's what it means here to mind your own business. It's not that you can't help others. It's that you first need to take care of what God has given you. Proverbs 26, 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. That's written in ancient times, and dogs weren't domesticated. The point is, if you went up and grabbed a dog by his ears, you were in hot trouble, big-time trouble, danger. Don't mess. Don't find yourself in a position of always being about what everyone else is doing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. We get that. Or a thief. Okay, we get that. Or an evildoer. Okay, we get that. Or as a meddler. In Christian circles, it's so easy to make our concern for others seem so Christian. And that isn't always the case. Set your gaze upon where God has and wants you. And mind your own affairs. Be busy. But be busy with what God has you doing and where he wants you. Someone who doesn't have anything to do is always in someone else's business. And so find something to do. Find where God wants you and do that. Don't live, as Paul teases it out, this undisciplined life. Be busy and be busy where God has you. This leads us to this third point. What is the Christian life? It is living quietly. It is minding your own business and is working with your hands. If God has given you something to do, do it. You don't need to spiritualize this thing. 
Work with your hands. This was written in a day and age where working with one's hands, manual labor, that was degrading work. That was viewed as lesser than. That was viewed as something that wasn't noble. And through the grace and mercy of Christ and through the gospel of Jesus Jesus and the power of his work, God has given all of work dignity. You don't need to be doing something that's vocationally spiritual to be faithful. If you're studying something that God has placed on your heart to do, do it with all of your might. You don't have to change course. You have to focus and you have to commit. Christian living under the lordship of Jesus gives all of work its dignity. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. Adam was a gardener. So what are you? I can't answer that question. I don't know all of you. But whatever God has called you to do, would you do it? John Calvin says, there is no work, however vile or sordid, that does not glisten before God. Work with your hands and so please God as he works in you. This is fundamentally about being who you are in Christ. Someone who lives in Christ, knows Christ, loves Christ, they will commit to these things, posturing themselves in love, living a quiet life, minding to your own affairs, and working with your hands. It doesn't seem like rocket science, and it's because it isn't. What's the fruit of a life that lives like that? What comes from that? As we read that, we would think, man, there's so much more we ought to do for God, isn't there? Let's look at what Paul has to say at the end of verse 12. Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. To live this kind of life, it isn't something that cheapens the gospel, it adorns it. It isn't some kind of, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. That's not what Paul is saying here. The gospel is a message, and we understand that it's a message that is proclaimed and delivered with words, and it has truth in it, and we would say amen to that. Paul would say amen to that, but that gospel finds its integrity in the church being who she should be. The gospel saves, and it sanctifies And when it sanctifies, the world should see Christians who live a quiet life, who mind their own business, and who work with their hands. It should find Christians who stay out of every argument, who focus on what God has them doing, and who do those things with all their might. Doesn't make you any less of a Christian. That makes you all the more a Christian. If God is at work in you, we should see these things. Tending to where God has you, and working in what God has you, to the glory of God by the power of God. Why? This is of witness to a dying world. This is a way in which you walk properly before outsiders. And so when you commit to living in these simple and fundamental ways that God has designed for us, what you do is set up a world for seeing the beauty of Jesus. You set up the world for seeing the glorious redemption to be found in Christ. Not by your trying to get them to understand it, but by your living out the implications of the gospel that you believe. 
Walk properly before outsiders. Trust me, outsiders already have a good enough time rousing up and stirring up conflict, diminishing peace, being all up in everybody else's soup, and hoping that everyone else will give them what they need, entitlement. That's out there in abundance. May it never be here. You have a witness to a dying world. What will it be? Will it be a life that is quiet, mindful of one's own affairs, and that works hard in a spirit of love, a love that has been granted by God? What's more, not only does this life have an impact on outsiders, it has an impact on the inside as well. You do this so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. That's an inside implication of what we're talking about. That means that when someone lives in this way, they're not always needy of other people. Here's the thing that Paul's not saying. You can never be needy. We get that needs come up in the church, but may the needs come up because life establishes needs. Because as Jesus said, in this world is trouble. May the needs not come up because you don't live out what Christ has called you to live out. May the needs not come out because you don't know how to work hard and you can't keep to yourself. You can't help but be in everybody else's business and you can't help but stir up strife. That's what Paul is talking about here. Live in this way so that you would prove to the outside world the work of God in his church and so that in the church you wouldn't be overly needy. Your needs are not established by yourself. They're established by your lot. Be dependent on no one. Living in this way is living a life that is fundamentally Christian. It isn't something that is otherworldly, it's heavenly. It is establishing on earth the kingdom of God one day at a time in God's way. Living as though we truly seek to please God more and more. The story is told of a young man in the sixth grade by the name of Davion Johnson. At 11-year-old in Oklahoma, Davion, one morning, goes to school, has a desire to be an EMT. That's his life dream. Goes to school, and he's hanging out one morning, December 9th, 2021. He's by the water fountain getting a drink, because that's what you do in sixth grade. It's an incessant thirst, and so you always have to go to the water fountain. And so Davion goes to the water fountain and then he hears a seventh grade boy whisper through grass, I'm choking, I'm choking. The boy had tried to open his water bottle with his mouth and the cap got stuck in the back of his throat. Yikes. Well, Davion, he seizes the moment. He sees what's happening and he runs over and he performs a Heimlich maneuver and eventually this, this cap comes out of the boy's mouth and he's rescued. Later that day, Davion, still thinking about what happened, is driving with his mother on the road to church when they see smoke rising up out of a house. And the mom says, man, someone must have burnt the chicken. And he goes, no, I don't think so. He says, we need to turn around and see what's going on. And they go and they turn around and they get to the house and the house is on fire. And he goes and knocks on the door, unaware are inside six people. And five of them come running out and there is but one lady who is working her way out, but she's in her 80s and on a walker. And Davion says, ain't nobody got time for that. So he runs in the house and carries her out of the house to her truck. The boy saved the day twice in one day. When asked how he learned to do the Heimlich maneuver, he said, well, I just went on YouTube. 
when asked how he knew to run in to save this woman from the fire, he said he'd seen his father do it before. Later, everyone was lauding him and saying, Davion, what a hero you are. And Davion just responds and says, I don't think I'm a hero. I just thought it was the right thing to do. Friends, you and I need to be Christians who live by the water fountain, who drive on the way to church and just do the right thing. We have a lesson to learn even from an 11-year-old boy. He was minding his business, getting a sip of water. Next thing you know, he's saving a life. He's on the drive to church. Next thing you know, he's helping a lady out of her burning house. Why? It was the right thing to do. Friends, as Christians, we have such a propensity to overcomplicate what this should look like. And there is no need for it. I pray that this morning in Christ, you would recognize all you're called to do is love and live. When you live in that way, you will be ready for whatever God has planned for you. All those other things, those flashy points that saving an older woman or saving a young choking boy, those things come only as you're committed to doing the everyday thing. So what is your call today? Love, live a quiet life. Mind your own affairs and what God has you doing. And work hard wherever God has you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are gracious and merciful. You have saved sinners not by means of anything that they could offer you or do for you, but by means of your character and worthiness. Your integrity is what saves us. You being who you are all the time is what has saved us, and you are love. May we now, who have been transformed by your grace, love as you love. Not by our, by our own efforts, but by the one who now lives and moves in us to every good work planned for us. Thank you, God, that being a Christian is not this overcomplicated thing. Thank you that it exemplifies itself and it bears itself out in an everyday commitment to being who you've called us to be. And so would you help us, Lord, even as we go from this place, to see that to be more fruitful in the Christian life does not require us to conjure up all kinds of strategic ways in which we can work this out. But it does require our commitment to Christ in the everyday things. Help us, Lord, as we go from here to be committed to you. Thank you that you are committed to us in that we find power to live in the way that you've called us and to walk in a way that would please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.